Welcome to Chief Everything Officer, a podcast for entrepreneurs who do it all. We are sponsored by Juntobot, an impact-oriented venture school and studio focused on designing and scaling startup ecosystems for the future. Greetings and welcome to the Chief Everything Officer podcast. I'm your host, Devin Borsanger, and with me today is Bita Ansari, Chief of Staff for the Peace for Peace First. As always, I'm not going to butcher the intro. Bita, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? I know who you are, but everybody else doesn't. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Amazing. Thanks, Devin. It's uh, great to be here and great to chat with you. Uh, I'm Bita Ansari, Chief of Staff at Peace First. Um, it's a 30 plus year organization that's been around that is really focused on giving micro grants to young entrepreneurs and change makers all around the world. We fundamentally believe that any young person is capable of change and we back that belief up with concrete resources, not just money, but also skill building, mentorship and communities so that they can go out in the world and create the change that they need for their own future. That is amazing. That's so, that sounds so cool. So, Peter, how did you go from being that youth change maker to being the chief of staff of an organization that facilitates and supports change makers? Definitely. So, I will say that, like, I grew up um, as like the firstborn kid in a family of immigrants on like both sides, and so wow. that kind of like by default makes you a change maker, even though like <laughs> any immigrant can can tell you like that is not a word you ever heard growing up. <laughs> Um, at all, but you know, you're you're kind of constantly in this environment of trying to figure out two worlds, right, and two cultures and multiple languages, and just figuring out like who you are in this place that no one else in your family also really understands. And so, I grew up in a very typical kind of like a, go to school, don't focus on anything else. Grades are like the only thing that matters. Um, and then that worked out really well. I was until I got to college. I was pre med my first, I think, year. And then I was like, do you know what? I don't want to be in school for the next 15 years. It's just not for me. And so uh, as a student, I think I changed majors like three times, um, maybe four, mm -hmm. uh, and ended up just working uh, while an undergrad um, at a tech startup. And so I also do have a family of entrepreneurs. And so half of my family are founders and entrepreneurs. The other half are all engineers. And so totally opposite ends uh, of the spectrum. And I'm somewhere like right in the middle, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I was working at my family's like tech startup, um, I think my last two years of college. And uh, then I graduated in 07 and right, the banking crisis hit the US, like the economy tanked. And so I just ended up staying there full time. And I was like an EA, I was an office manager. It wasn't anything really glamorous. It wasn't anything crazy, but I always tell folks it was the best first job out of college. I think when I joined, I was like employee number 10. And so I did everything. I was answering phones. I was like the legal team, the legal intern, um, filing NDAs. I was on marketing, doing copy editing. I was helping out the finance team, doing expense reports. So I really got a good sense of like the nuts and bolts of what it takes to run a business. And I think though what I learned there is true, whether you are in the for-profit for, for or nonprofit sector. And I did that for about two years post-graduation and wanted to do something different. At that point, I knew it was not something, you know, I didn't see myself in the tech sector long-term. I wasn't an engineer. I had majored in econ and finance and had heard about Ashoka. My family actually was very familiar with it. And they said, this, you know, this is a social impact thing. It's a nonprofit organization. Why don't you take a look? And 
I did, and I was blown away. So Ashoka is a global organization that supports social entrepreneurs. They give them no strings attached to grant, but they also have a variety of programs that supports change making, social innovation, and social entrepreneurship all around the world. And this is back in 2008, 2009. And Ashoka had a really great program in regions all around the world where they had a lot of Ashoka fellows, and those are like Ashoka grantees, um, where anybody, as like an outsider, you could go down and engage with fellows. Almost imagine like an alternative spring break for adults who are really interested in changing the world. And so I got to do this um, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. I spent, I think, eight or nine days down there. Probably met five or six Ashoka fellows and their organizations and was totally blown away. I came back and I was like, uh-uh. I can't do any more like expense reports. I'm done. I need to like do Ashoka stuff. I don't know what that means, but I need to do Ashoka stuff. And so I like cold emailed the lovely person out of Ashoka, Argentina, who was organizing the program. And I was like, hi, I'm Bhutan Sorry from America. Like, what can I do to help? With all of kind of like the hubris and like ego of a probably 24, 25 year old, just sent this like cold email to her. Um, and she, I don't know how or why, connected me to Marina Kim, who at that time um, had been at Ashoka for a couple of years. She was the co-founder and executive director of Ashoka U. And so Ashoka U was a brand new, like, baby initiative within Ashoka. And the purpose and the goal of Ashoka U was to partner with colleges and universities to help them become hubs of social innovation as a way to basically graduate more change makers. That was our ultimate goal. And so I did a couple of phone interviews with Marina and she said, do you want a summer internship? Um, we're just getting this thing off the ground. It's brand new, it's very startup-y um, and we just need help. And so I said, sure, no problem. I had about three months of money saved up. And so I drove my car from Dallas to DC. Mm -hmm. I like got there on a Sunday I remember very clearly Monday was, was Memorial Day and I started Tuesday and that was it. I ended up staying for 12 years, I think 11 and a half, 12 years after that. Luckily, not all of it as a summer intern, um, <laughs> but uh, ended up that summer really, you know, doing absolutely everything. It, when I joined, there were two co-founders, Marina and Aaron, who were already there and they were just figuring it out as we went. Um, and so the way Ashoka works is it's a very entrepreneurial organization. So all of the different programs and teams and initiatives um, are really meant to be self-sufficient. And so we had very little, if any, startup capital from Ashoka. We basically just had um, a one year like runway to prove ourselves, to do proof of concept, um, proof of impact, right? How are we moving the needle in the world? Um, and a business model. We actually paid the entire time that we were there rent and overhead back to Ashoka. We were responsible for covering all of our salaries, all of our programmatic costs, which I'm happy to go into how we did that as well. Um, but it really was a startup business oriented type of environment in which we were launching Ashoka U. And so that summer, I remember clearly, um, I was looking at like wireframes for our website to get like AshokaU.org up and running launching our first Twitter account and figuring out like, what is Twitter? What is this space? How do we engage in it? Who needs to engage in it with us doing Facebook? And at the end of the summer, I got hired on as like a program associate. And that was the beginning. Um, I did uh, just general work the first couple of years at Ashoka U. We were again, super startup-y, like we didn't have formal job descriptions. It really was just kind of pick up whatever 
needed to be done and run with it and get it done and then redo it again and iterate and keep building on it. That first year, Ashoka, you had four college campuses that we had partnered with. And so we had sent out contracts and we had said, I think it was something like give for $50,000, we will basically consult with your university, your institution and help it become a changemaker campus. And so that was like our golden product. Changemaker Campus was a designation that we would give to colleges and universities to recognize them as the best for social innovation as recognized by Ashoka, which was a global, like well-known organization for social impact work. Um, and that was it, that was kind of all we had. So the irony of this is that I was like 24, our co-founders were like 25 and 26. And so again, we were going around to like university presidents and provosts and tenured faculty, really trying to pitch and sell this vision of a university needs to have a bigger calling. It can't just graduate young people with a 4.0 GPA. It needs to create and graduate change makers who go out into the world who can solve problems, whether they work at Google, whether they launch their own social impact organization, they need to be equipped with the mindsets and skill sets of change making. And we can show you how. That was kind of what we had. So how did you get those first those first four? I mean, you know, that's one of the things I like to talk about with the startups is, is this glass ceiling of sales. And mm -hmm. it's, it's almost world changingly hard to get that first customer. Yeah, so it was a bit of like every it was a bit of luck a lot of planning um, and a lot of uh, just incessant kind of follow-up. So the way that it worked was three of the first four were based in the, or very close to the DC area. It was the University of Maryland in College Park. It was Johns Hopkins and George Mason University. So a lot of that was, they were close. We couldn't afford to fly out to Stanford, right? And convince them and then fly back and then fly back for another meeting. Um, a lot of it was also like looking at who were the in institutions that we just had access to very easily. We could just get to at the drop of a hat. So that was one thing. We had just a small market size if you looked at it that way. Two, um, we found the right people. Um, and so this was, I think, the key to Ashoka U's success, not just in that first year, but in the long run. A university is going to employ thousands and thousands of folks, right? Where do you start? Who do you go after? Who is the right person? Who is the change leader, the change maker that is going to be your advocate and your ally on the inside? Um, and Ashoka U, I think, was Marina and Aaron, to their credit, who who were the ones who signed up the first four, were really adept at just finding those folks, um, networking, talking, honestly leveraging the Ashoka name and the Ashoka brand and using that, uh, you know, being really young women in their early to mid 20s to say, you know, I'm here on behalf of Bill Drayton. I'm here on behalf of Ashoka. I'm here on behalf of this global NGO that you've probably heard of, even though you don't know who I am, and I want to partner with you. And so it really was a, a, a lot of, I would say, like insight on their part to figure out how to leverage the, the network and the backing of Ashoka to open that first door um, so that they could get the meetings that they wanted. And then once they were in, it was golden. And so they got the first door and they had committed to a three-year partnership. And so they had three years of recurring revenue from those first four that basically seeded the next 12 years that we were able to just build on and keep growing and growing and growing. That's really interesting because those four customers having such a high ticket item, those, and it was, it was 50K recurring or was 50K? I, I think was, we got 50K you know, recurring. 
I'm pretty, it, which was a bravo, crazy point. Lady, bravo. Yeah. <laughs> that is a high ticket recurring. Yeah. That is wow. Wow. And I'll tell but, you, no one else ever bought at that price, right? Like yeah, we yeah, had yeah. It the first, everyone was like, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah. And like, you know, to your point also, the thing that, you know, did help was universities are inherently competitive, right? So we yeah. went to gym and said, you know what? UMB just signed up down yeah. the street. Are you in or what? Are you going to get left behind? Then we yeah. went to J Hopkins and we said, look, the two other giant universities here, they're in is Hopkins as the forefront of like medical research and all, are you all going to get left behind? Then we went up to Cornell and we're like, we got the three best universities in the DC area on board. Yeah. What about Cornell? We need an IV in the Northeast. Are you want to be the first IV? And they were, that was it. So it really was like leveraging one off the other and recognizing that. It, and I think this is true in a lot of spaces, but especially in higher ed, being the first mover matters a ton. Right. And so as as we worked more and more with universities, we would all we would have, you know, we are the first change maker campus in the Northeast. We are the first change maker campus in California. We are the first Jesuit change maker campus. We are the first campus in like, you know, southeastern Maine, whatever it is. And so really helping campuses leverage the uniqueness and just letting them lean into, you know, I'm the first of something to do it really, I think, work well in our favor. How long did that sales cycle take? Mm -hmm. So this was one of the biggest pivots that we did at Ashoka U was we in that first year, you know, they sold the four contracts, the four universities, um, and we never got anybody else to sign up at that price point. And what we learned fast forward 12 months when it became time to renew, they were like, we're not sure. Prove the value. We're not sure we got the value of $50,000. Prove mm -hmm. it to us. And so we spent tons of time like here's data and here's reports and here's how much time we spent on you and we broke down i think that our hourly like consulting rate if like nothing else trying to really prove the value of what we had done um what we started doing and this is where the the model ultimately landed i think a few years in was we broke it up we essentially ended up developing a really sophisticated selection process so we realized the money was in getting the badge getting the designation and the validation the recognition by ashoka it was infinitely harder once they had it for them to keep paying for it, right? So it was that first like instant gratification that they wanted. And so within that selection cycle, we built an entire product line. And so we broke it out. We said step one is, and again, we, we increased it bit by bit over the years, but it ended up something at like step one was $7,500 and it was like an assessment of what your campus is doing. Like you answer a bunch of questions, you do some interviews and we give you like a, a report and we'll walk you through what you're doing really well and where there's areas for improvement. And that's $7,500. Then we said the next phase of this is a site visit. So we come onto campus and we meet your whole team. We meet your president, your provost, your students. And I think we had priced that at like six or 7,000 plus travel accommodations. And then the final step was $10,000. And that was a panel where you would come in uh, to a group of like independent judges that wasn't Ashoka U and they would assess everything that had happened. They would interview you and engage with you and they would give the final verdict if you got the designation or not. Yeah. And so what we realized was instead of saying, look, it's $35,000 upfront, breaking it up into three smaller payments of under 10K each was mm -hmm. game changing because that also kept it under a certain approval level within the institution, right? Yeah. When you have these big ticket items, it has to go all the way up the chain. And then everyone's asking, why are we spending this money? 
the smaller the item was, we realized the less approvals it needed. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a startup founder and I've said, okay, when you blow out your customer persona, one of the things you need to understand is specifically what is the buyer's journey? How do they make that purchase? And they would just look at me like, they take out their credit card and they put it on the table. It's a, I, I don't understand. And I'm like, no, you really do need to understand that because if they're like, especially in B2B or enterprise sales, if the procurement over 50, over 500,000, it now needs to go into procurement. Yeah. Now it needs to go into competitive bid. Uh, it now needs to be an equal split, whatever they're uh, of, of public and nonprofit uh, funds, uh, whatever it might be, that like, fundamentally like changes the game and i i love that you guys did that because that's that's such an important part of selling stuff one of the other things i like and in fair transparency i've been through this process this is how i met beta so mm -hmm. uh, i i know this from the other side and one of the things i loved about it was that the two things one the concept was not brought by the president or the provost mm -hmm. it was brought by people who had the money yeah uh, brought by uh by funders of other programs in our institution so there was kind of a a way to pay this b it came from a trusted source and c it came with a kind of uh i don't want to say a gun to the head but very much of a you will listen to me yeah you know, and yeah. those three were really, and it, it, what I love when I saw it, because I just was like, mm -hmm. I see what's going on here. Because <laughs> I had done the same thing when I, in, uh, in my old software company, we were selling basically transformational software services for mm -hmm. uh, print service companies to turn into marketing services. How do you do personalized marketing? How do you do cross-channel online marketing, mm -hmm. offline marketing? And nobody gave a crap. Uh, they were all like, how do I get more customers? And uh, yeah. when I started trying to sell into agencies, they were like, wait, so you're you're going to be able to, ex so then my customer will will be able to see how much of the advertising we're making for them is being wasted. I'm like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. They're like, no, that's awful. You've just cut the <laughs> amount of money I'm making in half. And I'd be like, no, but then you can suspend and I click hang up every single time yeah yeah going to the customers and i started selling the head of marketing at frito-lay and then frito-lay would walk me into the advertising and they'd be like oh so can we buy the solution ourselves like, we don't work with you we only work with advertising agencies mm -hmm. but uh you know happy to work with your agency and yeah. they would walk us in, into the agency then the agency would hire us because others are going to lose the frito-lay contract and then we would eat our way into every other contract yeah That's exactly yeah exactly the reason why i say that is those of you who are not those of you listening who are not selling into the educational market don't just don't listen to this because that concept of the pincher attack and the and and, and making sure you're bringing things below a procurement cost and so forth can be done in multiple multiple different uh selling processes so. exactly and it's like figuring out like what we recognize and i think that's so much what you're saying like the drivers of demand aren't necessarily decision makers and budget holders. And so we would market towards students a lot, right? We would engage student groups 
but like, right, they don't, they can't make decisions. They are not going to fund and they're not going to pay me at the end of the day. But we would mm -hmm. say, go tell your faculty that you're going to only go to a campus that has an Ashoka U designation, right? Yeah. Or when you get on, when you are in your freshman orientation, ask what change making activities there are here and how you want to engage. And when mm -hmm. enough faculty hear it, they're going to come to us and say, what is this change maker campus thing? My kids can't stop talking about it. My students mm -hmm. can't stop doing it. And then on the flip side, we can go to the faculty and basically say, like, look, this is a way for you to get promoted. I can guarantee you if you do the change maker campus as a nation, you will meet with your president or your dean or your provost once a quarter. And mm -hmm. here's what we can guarantee is going to happen for you. We can now also say, like, 30% to 50% of the folks who work with us got a promotion within two to three years after getting the designation. And so figuring out what are who are who are the demand drivers, who are the decision makers, and then what are the incentives that are going to keep them on board to keep doing this work with us. So, so you would you would talked earlier about the the basically the three-step approach mm -hmm. to getting into being a change maker, camp being a camp change. What happened after you became a change? Because I only I, I was part, I, I went to a, a, a conference, which mm -hmm. those conferences, that con those conferences changed my life. They yeah. really, I, I think I was brought on, I was brought to the Changemaker uh, Shogi U conference, mostly because I was an evil capitalist, you know, and- We I, loved everybody at the conference. The conference was yes. for everybody. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what social impact is. I just know that I don't have Birkenstocks. And they're like, okay, well, that's really not a good answer. You cannot, and that cannot be your answer. So you have to go to this thing. And I was really 100% not interested in going. And I was just like, mm -hmm. well, fine, it'll be San Diego. I'll see if I can cut out early. I'll go to the beach. And it rained the entire time. So I was like, yeah. damn it. So I went, <laughs> I went, so I was like, fine, I'll start going to these things. And each one of them was so amazing and so like insightful and, uh, and, what I look for when I create an event is not to have a bunch of talking heads just talking. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, you can always do that at home. Um, it's how do you turn this into an executional event? How do you turn this into learning that I can actually do? And every single, I don't know if I only, I only happen to go to certain ones that were this, but almost all the ones that I went to mm -hmm. were very much of, okay, now this is how you implement this. Uh, you know, the, you're have, you're struggling with identifying and working with microaggressions. Here are the tools to identify it and stop yourself in the moment. And here's a framework for understanding how mm -hmm. to tamp down your microaggressions. You're trying to figure out how to create a theory of change. Boom! Here's a theory of change framework. Like it was so executional, and it really got. That was the selling point for me on Ashoka. Was that. Mm -hmm. It's just all stuff that I could actually use. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, when you look at like the portfolio of your uh, of, of what you, I mean, all the revenues being driven by that by that selection process. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it, how do you drive that value on the other side? Definitely, After. definitely. So when and so what what Devin's talking about is when we first launched, we had the 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 designation, the change backer campus from. 2008 was the first year, and we introduced this conference called The Exchange in 2011. So the first three years, the only revenue we had coming in was for like designation, consulting, and engagement with institutions, right? They were our big money, our money driver. We recognized that like, look, 
there's only so much you can scale that, right? Like every one staff person can only handle like a portfolio of like one or two colleges per year. And that's not super scalable unless I like keep just hiring more and more and more people. Um, we also recognize that we, at that point, I think by 2011, we probably had 10 campuses and we were like drowning. We didn't have really, once they got the designation, there wasn't concrete ways to keep engaging them again without us having to fly on campus and host a session. And we just kept getting demand from folks. Like, who are you? What do you do? I've heard about this designation thing. How can I get involved? And so we, we created the exchange as a place for not only our campus, our changemaker campuses to come together, but a way for us to engage new markets, new clients, new universities, whether or not they were ever going to become a changemaker campus. And so the conference eventually grew to be our broadest, our most open, like lowest barrier to entry engagement opportunity. The first year we did it, um, we lost a ton of money. I think we paid, we had like 50 people. We paid for all of them to come to DC. We like covered their travel and airfare. We planned it in like, I think six to eight weeks. We They hated it, it did not go well. Um, and we all fell down like sick with the flu after just from like stress, basically. Yeah. And so we came back- uh, Let's put a pin in this because I want everybody to yeah. hear the delta of this experience to my experience. And I think that is really, I'm sure she's gonna say it. I don't wanna step on her story. However, I think the, the concept of optimization cycles and constantly optimizing things mm -hmm. because whatever you did, you got it to a point where mm, it was beautiful. At least to me, I, I absolutely adored it. And, and I was not in DC, it was in San Diego. So I don't know how many- Thank you. And I appreciate that. And like the model was like, even in 20, when you came uh, in San Diego, it probably could have been like five X better, right? Like mm -hmm. it was always about how do we keep the core of who we are and what we do but keep mm -hmm. improving and iterating. Like the last one we did was in 2021. It looked fundamentally different from that event in 2010. I don't think we even had like exchange. We didn't have branding. We didn't have a name. It was just like a come hang out in DC. But that was the beginning of it. We eventually grew it year after year. We started charging folks to come to the conference. Um, by year three or year four, we were kind of breaking even. And really by year five, we were throwing off um, additional revenue. We had surplus that was then funding the other programs um, that Ashoka U was starting to set up and launch. All in by the end in 2021, that was the biggest money generator that all of Ashoka U had. It was subsidizing almost all of the other programs. We were bringing in corporate sponsorships, university sponsorships, and we were charging individuals. So it opened up a totally different market so if Changemaker Campus was an institutional revenue stream, the University of Maryland paid me. Um, the exchange was an individualized revenue stream. Like Devin, you paid me, right? Or your professional development funds paid me, right? Or it was, it was a much more one-to-one -one engagement. It happened once a year, so it was on a fixed timeline. And we were able to create economies of scale. When we first started it, it was me doing with about 50 people. When we hit 400 folks, we hired our second person and that was it. We, we ended up at close to 800 participants by the end and we were about like two and a half FTE. Yeah. And so it was a huge way for us to engage um, our audience in a efficient and effective manner. And what we what ended up happening on at the sessions and in the conference was we would position the Changemaker campuses. It was a huge value add for those in the network who had the designation 
we basically created the premier platform to showcase their work to other colleges and universities. And so 50% of my speakers were folks in my network. They were essentially talking about their work, but really marketing the impact of what Ashoka U was doing and the exchange was doing by yeah. partnering with them. So they were building a pipeline of other campuses that wanted to come work with us, and then also allowing us to engage corporate partners, community partners, and get more marketing and PR for what we were doing. And so it was a really great way to bring all of these folks together and benefit not just the broader sector, but those who are already in network and working with us. Yeah, I, I love, you know, one of the things, and I, I it's clear to me now how to talk, talking to you now and on the other side of it than was at that point in time, because I just loved it. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't really have a critical eye to it, um, but I, I loved what it was doing. But one of the th hearing you talk about it now, I really it, it was crystal clear that it did a couple of different things is that it acted as a service model. So here's a service to everybody mm -hmm. that uh, didn't have it didn't have to be individualized on campus. It acted as that, like you're saying, that recruitment, and that marketing arm, but it also um, it proved the value of the credential, yeah. so um, because it, it taught people in the in the individual sessions how to do something. You're like, great, so now I need, I now I know how to do this. That's great for me individually, but yeah, how do we get that accreditation for organization so that an organization, if this is what we get without accreditation, oh my God, what would we get with accreditation? Yeah. The entire organization was operating like this. What would the what would the world look like at the university I'm working at? And uh, so I, I see where that marketing and that sales arm tucked into it, but it was also what was genius. This is something that I'm always trying to hound my startups to do is try to figure out how to make a dollar pay multiple. If you're going to do this work. Don't, you know, I will spend eight hours working with my team on how to do this presentation. If that then also teaches them how to do a presentation and yeah. also teaches them how to think logically and also creates all of the content for all of our marketing for the next six months, boom, let's do eight hours. I'm cool with that. But if I have to do that and then it's unusable and we have to do, I am giving you 10 minutes at most. So yeah. that's what I loved about what you did with the, with the, with the conferences is that it was a marketing vehicle, it was a sales vehicle, it was a service vehicle, and it was a, uh, if you look at the customer journey, almost every single touch point on that journey was covered during that, that conference, which I just yeah. loved. Totally, totally. And in the end, the last few years, it was also becoming a really interesting like data generator for us as far as just like la a lagging indicator of campus health and pipeline health. And so we could look and basically say like a, let's say a, any, a changemaker campus the last three years was sending about 10 people to my conference, right? They were, they were devoting X budget dollars in conference fees and hotels and travel and food and all that stuff. But this year it's been halved, right? They only send three people, maybe five people. Why? Are they unhappy? Are budgets being cut? Do I need to give them special extra attention? Is something going on that they haven't articulated to us? Do we need to be aware of them? On the flip side, we could, we would, without a doubt, every year that you could tell who was gearing up to apply. 
because they would go from like one attendee in year one, maybe two attendees, three attendees in year two, and then all of a sudden 10 people would come from this university that we hadn't really engaged with. And so we'd go back and say, hey, we noticed like you're investing a lot of time into the exchange. How can we help your journey? What do you need going forward? How do we really kind of galvanize the excitement and the budget dollars that is happening on your campus? What mm -hmm. else? How can we work together in the future? And so it, it wasn't everything, but that data was really opening up some insights that we wouldn't have gotten any other way from these campuses. Cool. So, but you're no longer working at Shopee. We spent a lot of time talking about it because that's mm -hmm. how we know each other. It's such a cool organization and a great, you know, it's a great story for people who are spinning up a social impact, uh, or, or or even a not not a social impact, you know, maybe a socially driven for profit that's you know in the EDU space. Um, but you're working at Peace First. What what is Peace First? Mm -hmm. So Peace First is a, a nonprofit organization. It's been around for I think 30, 35 years now. And it was initially a, a classroom-based curriculum to help young people develop literal like peacemaking and change-making skills, like how to bridge difference and communicate better with each other. Um, it's evolved, rightfully so, quite a bit over the last three plus decades it's been around. We are now a incredibly global and in fact predominantly global organization a lot of the work that we do takes place outside of the u.s and we really fundamentally at the core of what we do believe that young people and we define that as folks between the ages of 13 to 30 are equally willing able and capable of making change of solving problems that affect me as an adult in the same way that they affect them as young people and so we back that up with mini grants, we offer um, uh, grants up to $250. We provide um, incubators and mentorship and skill building. Um, we have an online platform, completely free, easy for anybody to access and engage with other change makers. And so what we found is there might be a young person in Nairobi um, cleaning up um, litter in their street. Um, and there's a young person uh, in Kathmandu maybe doing the same thing. How can they learn from each other? How can they connect? How can they share what's working in one region with someone in another region? And so a lot of what we also do is bridge building and cross-cultural learning between different change makers on the platform. Cool. So it seems like there's a common thread. You either were bitten by the bug of enabling uh, uh, change making, uh, the change making mindset. Mm -hmm. mindset. But uh, I wonder, you know, I, I we always ask, all of our startups to identify what their massive transformational purpose is. And everything we do is driven from the problem. Yeah. Uh, so I would love to know, I would like to enter an imaginary world where we continue to be friends for the rest mm -hmm. of our lives and through an incredible superhuman feat of uh, rebellion against actuarial tables, <laughs> I live longer than you. Uh, and your husband asks me to give your uh, your eulogy, and yeah. I stand up at your funeral and I say, you know, everybody knows Bita. She is this. She's an amazing woman. She's the woman who did X, who solved Y, who mm -hmm. accomplished Z. What what is that? What would if on your deathbed you know that you had accomplished X? What would that be? Oh man, that's a great question um, and super fun. I would say, like in its simplest form. I was somebody who helped others step into their own potential. 
um, and be the best version of themselves that they could be. I think the current lens, which with with which I operate, is through change making as mm. a skill set that can help you overcome obstacles, that can help you excel in your career, that can help you develop better relationships. Um, but I think it can take a variety of different forms. For me, it's really again all about how I can empower others to be them best their best selves. Cool. Uh... I think of the many conversations I've had with members of my family who are maybe slightly more conservative than I am. And, um, you know, and granted, this was the, I'm not going to say what decade, but it was an earlier decade. <laughs> we'll just leave it at the fact that you said young was uh, under 30, did put a slight knife in my heart and twisted it just a little bit. Well, I'm not in that group either. If it makes you feel any better, I have also <laughs> aged out of the under 30. <laughs> uh, aged out of the all the ads are no longer for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the but you know they always they would always sit there and be like, "You, yeah, Devin, you know it's all well and good that you want to be an artist, but you need to pay the rent. You need to have a craft." When you hear these things and they you know and you get these death by a thousand cuts of either um, ignorance or willful ignorance or willful uh, 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 fighting back against that concept. Mm -hmm. And uh, the analogy I like to use is it's cold outside and you're in bed and your bed is nice and warm and you can hit the snooze button and stay 15 minutes longer or you can get up, get your coffee and start working on this problem. What motivates you to get up out of bed when it's cold outside? Oh man, I mean, for me, it's really like my, it's always been difficult for me to like separate work from everything else. Like I feel lucky and privileged enough to have like worked in roles, whether it's at Ashoki or Peace First, where like I genuinely just love and appreciate and enjoy what I'm doing. And so much of that goes back to building things. Like I feel like in every role, whether it's been director of the conference, CEO of Ashoki U, chief of staff, I have been hands-on building and creating. And so even though I'm not an artist, I feel like I just scratch that creativity itch, right? I get to um, get feedback from community members. I get to engage with different audiences. And so for me, it's really being able to have that motive, that, that work that means a lot to me with people that I'm inspired by and I'm excited by and I learn from every single day. I think I am not interested in ever like being the smartest person in the room. And so oftentimes I'm like, you know what, let me just go into work or go on Zoom. And I know if nothing else, I'm gonna learn from my colleagues or my community members. They're gonna say something that's gonna inspire like a totally different train of thought that never came to me before. And how do we create the conditions for that to happen? Um, and so for me, it's it's really, it is about the work as like cheesy and like lame as that sounds. It I do find it to be incredibly motivating, but also the people I'm privileged enough to work with um, is really amazing. Yeah, it's you're not the first person to talk about that concept of being the not wanting to be the smartest person in the room. And and I find that all of the smartest people I know and all the most successful people I know, that's one of the top three pieces of advice they always give. Mm -hmm. I always equate it to um nature of horse of vacuum. There's a there's a there's a there's an there's an equaling of a room. And if you're the smartest person there, there's a large sucking sound as all of your knowledge is sucked out versus yeah. if, you know, just from a purely, you know, self-serving perspective. Uh, and I always find it uh, fascinating. There's, so I don't know if you know this mm -hmm. 
author. There's an author, Kim Stanley Robertson, and mm. he writes a lot about environments, science fiction in terms of what it's going to look like realistically if we don't solve the environment, or what would it look realistically if we went to Mars, and mm. what would be all the social impact and the environmental and the political problems we would have if we colonized Mars, for example. And there's this, uh, in one of his books, they create uh, a society where there's an economy of giving, hmm. where the, uh, where if we meet, I, uh, and I want to buy those lovely earrings for my wife, right? Um, it would, it would not be that I would give you money. It would be that you would wash my car. Yeah, yeah. You you would give me something and I would take on the burden of you having done something and that is the payment. And it was such mm -hmm. a mind-blowingly cool concept of flipping an economy on its head. And I wonder, and I, I think of that every time I hear that quote of being not being the smartest person in the room because it, all the smartest people are fighting to be the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> and it's like, we, we're like, I don't know about you, but I spent all of my 20s trying to prove that I wasn't the dumbest person in the room. Totally. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I find that, I really find that fascinating. Uh, so, so when you look at helping people be the best them that they can be, mm -hmm. uh, when you look at helping people find their Ikagai, mm -hmm. um, uh, what, what do you find that they 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 need logically need from a solution to this and what do you find they want emotionally mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah like, yeah i mean like look above everything else i think people at the end of the day just want to be heard right mm -hmm. they just want a space to feel like wanted and validated and i think this is true of anybody like i have worked for um, with Adeshoka U, I had um, two co-founders I worked under, an executive director um, at Peace First. We actually, I was hired under a founding CEO who left, and then we hired two co-CEOs to replace him. And so I would say like, even across, whether it's them, like folks I report to who are my bosses, folks that I have managed, my peers, my colleagues, I think folks just, they just wanna be validated, right? They just wanna like be recognized for who they are and the space that they're in. And I think whether it's in a like manager, you know, mentee relationship, whether it's in a peer relationship, I think when you, when you establish a foundation in that way of like, look, above anything else, I am your, I'm here for you. I'm here, I will make you feel heard. I'll make you feel seen. What anything you say after that is significantly more likely to be like taken seriously or listened to, right? If I give feedback to somebody who works for me, who is under me, and if I do it from a place of like, look, I see you and where you're coming from, and here is where I think you need to go to be a better version of yourself or do your job better or whatever it is, it's fundamentally different than me coming and saying, here are all your problems. Are you going to fix them or are you going to get fired, right? Like, what's the deal? Do you know, yeah. like, even if you don't say that, that's what we will hear a lot of times, right? And so how do we communicate in a way that I think validates where folks come from, but then also gives them like the space, the encouragement, the feedback to get better. And I think this is true for like the CEOs I work with now. A lot of that is like, you know, managing up of recognizing like, you know, where they're coming from, the burdens that they have, the experiences that they brought to it. And how can we, how can I help them be the best version of themselves? Because look, if they fail, I'm out of a job too. If my CEOs go down, I'm screwed. And yeah. so how do I validate and support them in a way that recognizes who they are? Yeah. And even in going back to the CEO thing, I have two 
they're like fundamentally different people, like yeah. nothing in common on a surface level. Not a rinse and repeat email. <laughs> yeah, nothing, right? And so how do I create a relationship that's different with each of them, um, but is also authentic to who they are, but also mm -hmm. helps all of us get the things we need to done at the end of the day? Yeah, I I, I remember when I was first taught about uh, people management and, uh, and I was taught about the shit sandwich, what we used to call it. <laughs> giving somebody feedback you give them the nice yummy bread of the you know yeah. what Peter? you're amazing you know what i really love you're always on time we need to talk <laughs> about the fact that you're incredibly racist but you know i really do love the fact that you really put your thought into into work so let's get back to that racist thing yeah and, like, you just like take whatever the awful thing that you need to talk to them about and bracket between two positive things and they're so confused about whether or not they're getting yelled at or complimented that they are more malleable and it was always seemed like such an incredibly manipulative way to manage people and to and it was not supportive it was here's an algorithm to be able to check off that I said the bad thing to them right. without them having a complete meltdown and going to HR in the room. They can have the meltdown after I leave the room, but now yeah. while I'm in the room, how do I do? And when we we flipped to this whole concept of I'm an Olympic coach and you're an Olympic athlete and I've agreed to coach you because I see the Olympic athlete in you. Mm -hmm. And you've hired me as your coach because you see that you have potential to be an Olympic athlete and I'm the best person to help you get there. So how do we go about doing that? So I'm gonna call out things and exercises that I think you need to do to get stronger, to be able to do that, to do this and that. And that conversation, it's like dealing with somebody with PTSD. Uh, it takes about four or five. Mm -hmm you know, coaching events before yeah. they don't flinch every time you say something bad. And then all of a sudden, and it, once they realize that you're actually there to support them and not to undercut them and not to document their weaknesses so that you can figure out how to kill them off, then it fundamentally the relationship changes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it like, it's, it's more time consuming, right? It takes more investment upfront. Yeah. It's, it's it's not cookie cutter. It's not kind of like the formula of like, this is how I do all meetings this is how I give feedback. It is really kind of meeting folks where they're at. But I think at the end of the day, too, like I think the way I've always approached it is my success is tethered to my team's success, whether they're my boss and they fail. Well, I'm it's not going to be great for me either. Right. I'm probably going to fail. If my team fails, then I've definitely failed at this point. Yeah. And so it is in my best interest to do what I need to do to make sure the folks around me are just as successful, mm -hmm. if not more successful than I am. I love that because that outcome based approach, uh, it, it might take eight hours where this might take an hour. But if this is going to take an hour and fail versus going to take eight hours and succeed, what do I want at the end is the success. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The uh, so. But let's flip this around to to peace first. So when you're dealing with uh, with these change makers, mm -hmm. um, these now apparently young change makers, not old change makers, we're not we're not we're not at all salty <laughs> about the ageist language, Peter. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, the the when you're dealing with these change makers, what do they need logically? Because you're talking about mostly you're talking about out externally from a global perspective. You're not yeah. really talking about continental U.S. You're talking about, first of mm -hmm. all, who are they? Are, are we talking about uh, 
uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, we're talking about BRIC, we're talking about mm -hmm. European, we're talking about Pacific Rim, we're talking about South America, Central America, uh, we're talking about ex-colonies. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like, what, what are we talking about in terms of the audiences that you usually work with? Yeah, definitely. So our, our big, we're definitely global. We have a presence in all six continents um, and not counting Antarctica, but the our biggest volume of folks is from Sub-Saharan Africa and Africa. And then from there, we have a um, big presence in MENA as well. Mm -hmm. And then our third most kind of engaged region is Southeast Asia right now. But we do also have presence in um, like Australia, Oceania, as well as Europe and the U.S., um, and then Latin America is kind of like in the middle, such Central and South America. Um, but so we have engagement across all of the regions. It does look so the the offerings are generally the same, whether it's mentorship um, in person meetups and like incubators and things like that, um, the mini grants that we offer. But we also like contextualize and modify everything that we do. So what is unique about Peace First um, is that we are so our most, not even all of our leadership, but some of our leadership is based in the US. You have me, um, you have one of our CEOs and our COO. The rest of our team are non-Americans. Um, we are, our other CEO, CEO is based in Colombia. Um, our director of programs is Jordanian, um, based in the Middle East. And then we have regional managers in all of the areas with which we operate. So we have a regional manager for Sub-Saharan Africa, one for MENA, so on and so forth. And they make the majority, if not all, of the programmatic decisions. So when we're figuring out who gets a mini a micro grant or a mini grant this year, it's not me sitting in like Dallas, Texas, understanding, like knowing my environment and my culture and my context. It's mm -hmm. the regional manager from MENA determining the grants that go out to MENA, right? Yeah. Because it's it's who she is, it's where she's from, it's her region, it's her culture. Um, and so I think that that is one of the biggest differentiators of Peace First is we're not like an American-based organization with American leaders making American funding decisions for the rest of the world. It is really kind of flipped on its head. Um, yeah. And my role is just to make sure the organization runs well. Um, and then all the on-the-ground on the decisions are made by folks with contextual and lived experience. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, talking to a woman at UT. I'm just down the road from you, and uh, and she was talking about this experience she'd had with startups that wanted to solve a problem in the Dominican Republic, and she looked at these four fine boys and asked them all, "Who are who here's from the Dominican Republic?" And they're all like, "None of us. I'm from Lubbock." He's from New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody was from even the Caribbean at all. Oh, and it was like, so what leads you to believe like, that why? you understand what the problem, what the true problems in the environment is in the Dominican Republic? They're like, we've got, we've got the internet. Like, oh, wrong answer, brother. Wrong answer. But I, I love that look, that global local approach. Um, because that's you know. The, the concept of being able to bring in somebody like you in Dallas who's supporting a global organization from an operational standpoint, but still having on the ground, boots on the ground in MENA mm -hmm. to, you know, to, uh, to really understand the difference between X and Y. I struggle with that. Like we have a lot of, uh, we have a, a lot, a lot of uh, Nigerian apprentices in our apprentice mm -hmm. program and understanding the cultural differences and 
when somebody is full of crap and they're not getting it done versus no, they don't have an in, the internet. They don't have internet, you know, and yeah. you know, it took me like a month of, you know, why are you, why are you on the street? Why are you taking a phone call, a video call on the street for mm -hmm. our conference? Please take this seriously. And, and he's like, he finally, like, he finally texted me after he's like, Devin, can I talk to him? I'm like, sure. And I talked to him and he's like, so I don't have any internet. The yeah. only internet I have is at the cafe down the street. So I steal their internet, which is why I don't talk a lot. And I'm sitting there mm -hmm. behind the door in the alleyway, mm -hmm. stealing their internet so I can have this video call. And in my hubris and my lived experience of unlimited bandwidth, right? which by the way, just in the continental US is as we've heard from talking to uh, Clayton Banks at Silicon Harlem mm -hmm. is a huge, Mm -hmm. huge benefit that a lot of people don't have. And I'm sitting here, you know, kids in Germany and the Philippines and Vietnam and Washington right. and Texas, and they're all on Zoom calls. And I'm like, they're not having a problem. Well, because whatever their experience is, isn't this kid's experience. And I didn't yeah. understand that. I almost washed out a great person mm. to that. And uh, so I really do, I, 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 I applaud that, that local approach to, to the to the to the grant uh focus of what you're doing um do you do you when you so are you primarily just writing checks or is there a support function of peace first after before yeah so it's it's both so we're evolving the model now um to be not just like funding focused and so we want folks so for a variety of reasons so one we can't give out grants to everybody um and so we want a value add to be there so like a what if you don't get the grant that doesn't mean never come back right or never engage with us it's, we don't want it to be right like money or bust and so how do we really bring folks into a broader ecosystem of support skills mentorship um, and community that mm -hmm. is is as meaningful than the 250 and on the flip side what happens when the 250 runs out um how do have we bridged that like i have a short-term social impact project to I am now like on a lifelong trajectory of change making. Um, yeah. And so it's a really interesting position for the organization to be in where we just went through this like CEO transition. We have fresh new leadership coming in and we're really thinking about how do we continue to do the things that Peace First has done, like the micro grants, but also expand the circle a little bit, put more things out there that are longer term, that are less direct, like cash intensive, but allow mm -hmm. us to continue to engage folks beyond just, you know, you got the money and I'll see you, you know, whenever I see you. 100%. I, I remember the moment when we discovered, uh, we had this amazing, amazing intern. Uh, uh, and Chris, her, her name was Christine and she, did a customer journey and we found very quickly that the ones that succeeded were the ones that we liked mm -hmm. and that was a really upsetting viewpoint mm -hmm. um, to understand was that because we didn't have a structured program for supporting them after our structured program so the people that we would be willing to set side apart on our calendar to listen to were the ones that get the added support after the yeah. fact to continue on and uh i was and just realizing that the sphere of influence needs to be expanded out past the discrete program you're running in order to ensure again the outcome if the outcome is x 
what ha needs to happen. You might be giving money, but then what happens to make sure that that grant actually leads to the change you want it to be? That's yeah. secondary and tertiary outcomes. And uh, I, I just remember that moment, that that summer that we got that, we had a huge design thinking session where we all started like, well, what do we do with this information? And it fundamentally changed how we how we led our organization and the programs mm -hmm. that we put in place to implement it. So yeah, I, I really uh, like that. Yeah. yeah. And I think like the like to your point, like the thing that's interesting about Peace First is that they like I would say they take a very like non-American approach in terms of like information hoarding, right? Or like role hoarding. And so it is a very mm -hmm. like democratized decentralized type of organization where like we as i like you know there's only three senior staff including me that live in the us um we have our regional managers we have ambassadors um that report to our regional managers that are responsible for creating community on the ground um and so there's like teams of teams of teams that work with these young people it's enabled us to create economies of scale we've but on the flip side we've given up control and i think that that's something that as an organization peace first is generally really pretty comfortable with because it serves our bigger mission and as long as we remember to take our own egos out of it if i don't need all the information i yeah. don't need to be in the center of every conversation i don't need to be at every single meeting that it helps us really accelerate our scale and our impact so all right so that let me ask you a question then based off of that because uh the uh the person who's read all the best leadership books and listened to all the great ted talks uh and had takes that into account and, and and that rings true across everything the micromanager and the ocd yeah a person in me fights it's literally as being like shoved in a box inside my soul and it's screaming bloody murder and scratching at the box and so i remember hearing this story about aerosmith and I have fact-checked it. It is, in fact, Aerosmith. For those of you in the comments who are going to get salty about it, it is, in fact, Aerosmith. The story is true. Uh, Aerosmith uh, is the reason why we have this uh, whole concept of uh, of ridiculous contract riders that, uh, huh. that rock stars have. And it's because they would ask for green M&Ms in their, in their waiting room before wow. they got ready. And everybody would go, oh, these entitled rock stars, green m &Ms. So some poor intern has to go through and find only the green M&Ms mm -hmm. and put them in a bowl. And the reasoning was that Aerosmith was running one of the first incredibly complex laser shows, these huge stadium shows. And they would be in Philadelphia on Monday, in New York on Tuesday, in Boston on Wednesday, in DC on Thursday in uh, Charlotte on mm -hmm. uh, Friday and on Miami on fr uh, on uh, on Saturday, and every single one of these whole th uh, these whole amazing things of uh, programs had to be taken apart, put in a box, put on a truck, shipped to the next location, taken out, and it was never the same. There were some some of the people were the same, but it's always local mm -hmm. talent. You didn't really know, and there's this. It was an incredibly detailed standard operating procedure. You didn't know whether they were reading it or following it. Right. So those green M&Ms huh. allowed them to go in. And the moment they walked in, if there were no green M&Ms, they knew nobody was paying attention and they had to go check everything. Huh. That's what brilliant. Are your, what are your green M&Ms? 
for your yeah. organization? Do you know, I think, oh, I wish it was as like insightful as the green M&M thing, but I think, you know, for me, it's, there's like, I don't know how to say this. There's never a situation where nothing went wrong. And so like whenever we do a postmortem on an event or a convening or, you know, a, anything that we have going on, a project, whatever it is, if I ask folks like, what would you do better? Or like, what was the thing that just like irked you was the most annoying thing about this project? If folks say nothing, right? Like I nailed it. I would never do anything better. Or I just, you know, everything was perfect. Nobody, no thing rubbed me the wrong way. I really struggle both from A, you're lying, right? And so you just don't feel secure to tell me the truth. You are scared maybe of what's going to happen. Um, or you're not looking to like grow and develop, right? Like you just don't care to get mm -hmm. better. And so for me, I think I like now I, I'm going to try to adopt this green M&M thing. It's not quite as concrete, but really what I look for in the postmortem is like our folks, do they have that type of like analytical eye, that quality control as we're doing something, myself included, are we always thinking about how we can make it better? Like I told you when we did the exchange the last time, I saw a list of like 10 things that I drove me nuts that I needed to make better the next time. Right. Yeah. And I would always ask my team, what do you all want to make better? Like, what is it? What's the thing that's bothering you? Um, and if, if you don't, it's not about it's as much about the what you want to make better. But it's also, I think, a way of thinking. Right. Do you have an eye towards quality control and an eye towards improvement um, along the way? Or are you just always happy with status quo? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember being in a workshop and we were talking to a CEO and we give this entire long presentation about customer lifetime value mm -hmm. and the ceo got incredibly angry and he said every single one of our customers is just as important as the other customer mm. and we turned to him and we said so do you have a head of sales sir and he said yes how do you compensate him i don't know base plus commission what's the commission based off of the size of the sale. So you've told your head of sales mm -hmm. that the bigger customers are the most important ones and you're compensating him accordingly. So, yeah, you know, so either you need to move him off of a comp uh, off of a, that compensation model, or you need to think again about who your most important customers are, but you get what you measure. What do you guys measure in order to, ensure that you're providing the most impact you can per dollar. Definitely. So we measure a couple of things. One, um, the volume of projects that we support, right? Like how many um, things are people and projects. So one person can, can submit multiple projects. Um, and then projects we look at in addition to, but also beyond grants, right? Because we want folks who aren't funded to create projects as well a new metric we're really starting to lean into and look at is um lifespan of a project so how do you measure you know are are folks sticking with their ideas um what is the impact and this is always i think what this was difficult at ashoka when we were doing this work it's i think equally difficult as at peace first it's what is the impact of the actual project how do like that's how you measure your change in the world right i can say i've like affected um, a hundred thousand change makers, right. Or a million college graduates, but mm -hmm. where do they go? 
right? Do they go, if they go work at Google, um, what is the impact that they're having there? If they launch their own social impact organization, what is the impact that they're having? And so a lot of what we're thinking about is how do we capture this like second and third order impact of where folks go after their engagement with us? Did their trajectory change because they came through our platform? Did they learn just how to do um, a, a skill better. We've had a lot of folks come to us and say, do you know what? It wasn't about the 250. It only went so far. But what I really learned was how to do budgeting. That was the first time I had to report back. This is how I spent my money. Mm-hmm. And so I've now learned a tangible skill. And so what we're really trying to do is understand and capture that nuance beyond how many dollars did we give out um, and how many projects were created. But what happened as a result of those dollars and projects? in the community and on those founders, on those change makers. Um, And of course, it's like compounded by the fact that we've got tons of languages. We're not operating in a static country or a time zone. It's young people. They have their own, you know, worlds in front of them as well. And we're just kind of one piece of their ecosystem. And so it's as someone who loves data and wants to figure this stuff out, it's really difficult, but incredibly exciting to think through as well. Yeah, that was one of the things that I always struggled with in the social impact space was how do you put a, what's the number you put on it? What's yeah. the dollar value? I mean, there was a great conversation. Um, Shamath Bahapataya was having his conversation with, uh, and he was talking about the reason why Stripe was get, was was down round value. And he was talking about the concept of, uh, of basic, it's basically price burn. It, it, mm-hmm. but, but really, but he was talking about it a little bit more granularly in terms of how much money was each employee making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always run that metric. And I remember the first time I tried to implement that metric at the nonprofit I was working at when I met you, which mm-hmm. whose name will remain nameless mostly because I don't want to get sued. But the, uh, the I not they would never, but but the point is, uh, so I tried to implement this employee efficacy score. Mm-hmm. How much are you contributing to the impact of our mission? How much are mm-hmm. you contributing to the support of the grant initiatives that we've been given money to uh, to do? And I, you would have thought I had asked everybody to take off all their clothes. It's now a clothing optional office. And, you know, I mean, like everybody was just horrified absolutely horrified at a level of moral quandary that really I was just kind of like, dude, I don't understand. Like this helps us all do our job better. Why, why are you so upset? Um, So I I say all this to say that I hear you, that it is so hard to implement those score, those, those scores or those metrics um, partially because people don't want to be measured. And I think that was part of the problem I had is that people were scared. To your point, I did not make and create an environment where they trusted me enough to know that I wasn't going to say, you are not an effective employee. Mm. So let's work on helping you be effective. And we're and and they didn't trust me to not be like, and aha, aha, now I have quantifiable proof and a way to fire you. And I hadn't created that trusting environment. But the flip side is really that concept of how do you tr- you know, you all right. So um, I have now helped you to learn how to to use your example. I've taught mm-hmm. you to how to uh, create a budget. Okay. So what is that worth? 
Well, yeah. that is worth, you know, you can now get an extra, you know, uh, $3,000 a year. Wait, but if I was able to budget, that would be like 30,000 in the US. You know, I remember when I got my my uh, my Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and the first time I got a job offer and they were like, well, we can only pay you. And the amount they offered me, I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> like, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. Wait, is, is there a camera? Are you tricking me? Yeah. Like the amount just jumped because yeah. of this skill and that impact can have a direct, direct dollar amount. But if you're talking about uh, Lagos, or you're talking about right. South Central Philadelphia, it seems like you're making significantly less impact there when you're not. So how do you load balance that impact measurement across the different, yeah. different geographies and so forth? I, th like, I think it's such an important question and I think it's about finding the right partners and funders, quite frankly, incentives to do that. Like, I think it, it, the easy thing for most organizations is to say, well, that's what my funders want. They just want to know how many projects, right? Like how many dollars did you give out in how many countries and how many projects and how many young people? It's that first tier of, of data without taking a step back and saying, well, what was different because we did this work, yeah. right? Like if we fold it tomorrow, what was what's different? Like what would yeah. be lost? because we're no longer here. I think it's it's much more time intensive and it comes at a cost, right? Like I'm not gonna get necessarily a grant by doing this work. Um, I might lose grants because I'm now not counting or gathering the same metrics that are like the quick um, kind of dopamine hit of like imp yay impact um, that everyone's looking for. Um, and so it's really about having a the awareness to take a step back and say, this is truly what matters to my organization. This is gonna inform future offerings, future you know, engagements, future strategy. And if you can, the holy grail is to find the right funder. I think there are some funders, there are some partners who are supportive of this work, who understand that you know, it's not necessarily like a linear metric you're looking after, but it's very difficult to do without that type of financial backing, that financial support. Even if you go back to like your example, um, you're not necessarily getting Pay. your job or your pay may or may not be tethered to that way you are looking at your employees right or your team members it makes it makes your team better right it, it, but it's not in your it's not maybe how you're measured on success you have to leave traditional success metrics and establish a new way forward just inherently risky i think um and so it's really about taking that risk charting a new path and really making sure that it's it's something that your organization is going to be fully behind mm -hmm. yeah how do you get the organization behind you though when you're looking at measuring something that might be there's a bullseye data yeah. you know hey we're a diversity organization our job is to empower women in tech we need to measure how many women are in our program that's an easy metric but the net promoter score mm -hmm. uh, on the program or likelihood to be an entrepreneur five years out. Yeah. You know, and uh, is that really what we were supposed to do with our pro, you know, uh, how do you sell those, those sec, I mean, if you look at your theory of change, you have your primary uh, yeah. impact, your secondary impact and your tertiary impact. How do you sell those circuit secondary tertiary impact metrics? 
Yeah, I think I think it's being really honest. Um, and we we had some success with this at um, Bishokiu where we had and we, we we ran the whole gambit. We basically had one funder who came to us and said, how big can you go? How quickly? And so we were all like, okay, we're going to look at, you know, like the the ex exponential um, like uh, diffusion of innovation curve. We're going to say we're going to hit this amount of this market by this date. And we're going to, you know, galvanize all our resources to just like grow, 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 grow. Um, and we did it and nothing was really different, right? Like we hit most of the growth metrics we had set out for us. And literally nothing was different. We didn't feel like the sector had changed because we had X percent more universities. We didn't yeah. feel like um, the, anything was fundamentally different. And so we took a step back as an organization and as a team and basically said, so A, do we care that things are not different, right? And you can, like Ashoka does a lot of thinking and a lot of talking about this. That's okay. Not every organization needs to like be at a root cause level, right? Like, look, I need the Red Cross to just hand out blankets when people are cold and you're homeless at night. That's important and that's valid work. However, there are other organizations who are coming in and basically saying, how do I solve homelessness on a systemic level? How do I bring in shelter organizations and addiction organizations? And how do I partner with the city and the Department of Housing and the help folks get jobs and bring the families into it and come up with a holistic solution to actually decrease homelessness rather than hand out 100 blankets every yeah. single night. They're fundamentally different missions and they're, you need both at the same exact time. And so I think a lot of it when you're within an organization and even as an individual and you think about like what's important to me and where do I want to work? What level of <laughs> impact matters the most to you? Am I gratified by immediate, you know, I see someone's hungry, I give them dinner, and they're not hungry today? Or do I want to think about how do I make sure nobody is hungry in the future? And yeah. so I think so to your question, like step one is really understanding where are you best equipped to serve, either as an individual or as an institution? Um, because I think that will fundamentally affect what you offer, right? How your business is set up, what your programs are. And so at Ashoka U, we really, when we did that level of analysis, we said, do you know what? We started out much more direct service, right? We want to have more courses on social impact. We want to um, do, have more direct, concrete, tangible offerings. But we now want to think about what does it look like to be much more systemic? How do we basically change admissions processes at universities? This was a big, big, big path we went down. We put a ton of money behind it of basically thinking we're gonna partner and really prove that um, students will go to a university if it offers change-making mm -hmm. curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a few change-maker campuses that, you know, when you fill out like the standard college application, you get asked like, why, are you, why do you want to come here? They had mm -hmm. put in there because it's a change-maker campus. And so we got very concrete data points that these students are saying, this is the differentiating factor for why I choose to put my tuition dollars into your institution. For us, that was a huge metric and a proof point that we're changing student behaviors and that students fundamentally want this out of a college education. We could then go to other, we go to the faculty, we go to presidents and say, here's what you need to do in order to get the next generation of students. And then we could also go 
to funders to say, look, we're changing admissions processes. We're changing how students think about college. This is huge. Make a bet on us, right? We have one data point. We want to push it out to five other data points. And so I think it's really thinking about like, what are the metrics that that are going to be transformative to you? And I think we we went through at a show, we went up and down. We at one point were tracking, I don't know, like 20 different metrics. We went from tracking like five to 20. And the answer was we just really needed like the six or seven right metrics that mattered the most to us. So that reminds me of uh, a sales manager I had who uh, was not exactly the best uh, people manager, or at least he wasn't the softest of people managers in the world. And he called me into his office one day and uh, he started out the conversation with, Devin, you are the worst salesperson I've ever met in my life. Oh no. This conversation is gonna go amazing. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I was, you know, I was a, I was a, a, uh, let's just say I had, I had a bit of an ego as a 20 year old successful salesperson. And I was, what are you talking about? I have more demos than any salesperson in this entire organization. I've killed it this quarter. We just got the numbers in and you, you are crapping on me and my numbers. And he's like, yeah, Devin, let's talk about your numbers. Mm -hmm. You're, so, you know, you have the most demos, but how many of your demos are turning into sales? And I'm like, I don't know, I haven't run those numbers. He's like, oh, I've run those numbers. I'm like, oh, fantastic. <laughs> and the, basically what he was talking about was this concept of, I was selling to the demo. I was doing all the work to get the people on the mm -hmm. call for the demo of the software and no work or, the entire positioning of that relationship and all of my activities stopped at that point and not at the true yeah. point of impact, which was the close of that sale. Are, have there been any activities that you were working on that like you're looking at it and you're like, either at Ashoka or at uh, Pace First, where you're like, you know, we really got to fundamentally change this uh, because, you know, for example, at Zahn, at the uh, organization I was working uh, at, our main mission was to inspire our students with the idea that they too could become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And after my first summer accelerator program, uh, the I, we did a, a survey and the entire program, not the entire, but uh, like 85% of them said, this is the best experience I've ever had. I've never, I haven't learned this much in my entire four years of college. It is mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. And then the next question is, how likely would you to be an entrepreneur? And they were all like, never again. Huh. I never want to be an entrepreneur. Wow. <laughs> and we were like, okay, well, obviously we're doing something wrong. If our main mission is to inspire, inspire entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. sure, they learn more than they ever learned. Sure, they are readier to be an entrepreneur, but they don't want to be one. We got to change what we're doing. Have you had that happen with you guys? Oh my gosh, definitely. So I think the interesting thing about Ashoka was our framework, all, like the ultimate measure of success was how are you putting yourself out of business? Which I think, especially yeah. if you're like in the for-profit sector, is probably incredibly counterintuitive. But when you're in social impact, it's really like, look, going back to what we were saying earlier, I am here to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And when that problem is solved, I therefore no longer need to exist. So my success only happens when I'm no longer needed. Mm -hmm. And so that was that's like a Ashoka ethos. And so yeah. that was just the environment in which we were very comfortable talking about and how we thought about success. 
Um, and even throughout like all, you know, 12, 11, 12 years of Ashoka U, we, the two constants were always the Changemaker Campus designation and the exchange, the conference, right? But alongside that, we started lots of smaller programs and products and then would run them for a couple of years and like wind them down for a variety of reasons, right? Some were great, just had a short lifespan. Um, mm -hmm. Some ended up costing way more than what we thought. Some there was no market for it. Um, so I think that in general, we weren't ever shy of trying, experimenting. And if it didn't work, moving on. Um, that mm -hmm. was very much baked into our culture. I think the biggest just pivot we did with Ashoka U was in 2021, we fundamentally changed our operating and staffing model. And so, as I mentioned, we'd we launched Ashoka U in 2008. We had on we had a selection consulting designation for campuses. We had an in-person conference, um, right? And then in 2020, the pandemic hit that fundamentally like wiped out the conference industry for at least 18, you know, to yeah. 24 months. And higher ed was hit really big too, right? There were no in-person classes, everything was moving to Zoom. Everyone was freaking out, right? And like melting down at that point. Um, and so we were in a really interesting position where our conference took place in the, in spring every year. So in 2020, it was scheduled for April. Um, it was gonna be in, oh my gosh, I can't remember where it was. It was gonna be in uh, the Twin Cities, St. Louis um, and Minneapolis. All of our prep was done. We had signed all the contracts. We had like, I don't know, five, 600 people like already registered and paid up. Um, and right, it, it COVID hit, everything was canceling. South by Southwest canceled, right? And then went out of business right after that or filed for bankruptcy. Um, Ted had canceled their conference. Um, and we were very much like last man standing because um, we were a little bit later into April. And so we there was a week where my executive director and I, we it was just caught, like, what do we do? What, what What's the right thing to do? Do you do it and everyone gets sick? Do you cancel? And we, we and we what we knew was we couldn't cancel because we couldn't afford to give the money back to folks. Like we yeah. needed the registration fees. We needed the conference fees. It was how we paid salary. We had already, you know, we, we already paid salary. There was no money to actually give back to folks. Um, and so we ended up moving in about six weeks. This was like early March and we had till mid April. We converted the whole conference to digital, to virtual. We did, I don't remember if you were there, Devin, or if I saw you last before, but we ended up doing like seven virtual, seven D like Zoom sessions. And this wow. was again before like there were like all these sophisticated well, those, like conferences. Those conferences were like that though. I mean, it was like drinking from a fire hose. It really was yeah. a Sophie's choice every hour on the hour yeah. of do I want to go to this amazing workshop that's across the the conference campus or this one. Right. I can't go to both. And so uh, I wonder if that wasn't even like a better thing for you because, you know. Yeah. You nailed it. So that ended up being the silver lining where we we um, did some interesting like pricing innovations for folks where we said, A, like stick with us, like mm -hmm. let us keep the full conference fee, which I think was like, gosh, I think it was like $800 per like $650, $700, And let us keep the whole thing. We're not going to refund you, but you can bring a, a buddy. You get like an extra participation yeah. ticket and we'll keep all of your revenue or you know, if you just want to come, we'll give you a fifty percent refund. If you don't want to come, fine, we'll give you yeah. your money back. And like, I remember when we went, yeah, like it was really like the entire team was a little salty. Why does Devin get to go and I don't get to go? <laughs> it was really like a bet. Like 
And so we, like the next year, we very, very, I very purposely yeah. was like, I'm not going. I want Keisha to go. Like, we have to trade this off yeah. because if we have one person go constantly, then it, because it is such a value. So yeah, I think and that's exactly that's what a lot of folks did. They would split it up. So to your point, this year, like, because we were virtual, everyone ended up coming. They were like, we'll bring extra folks to your conference. We'll, we'll let mm. you keep the fee. And we recorded everything because it was all on Zoom. And so yeah. it may, it was so amazing and it was so phenomenal from just like a content perspective. We saved everything. It was all, it's still on the website now. If folks want to go back and like watch the sessions, it's still there. Um, and so it was a really interesting time where we came out of the conference thinking like, oh my God, we're amazing. And we saved the day and we did this conference and we have all, we have money for now. And COVID didn't end right when we thought it was going to like lockdown, it, like it just, it kept going for like yeah. years. And so we, we kind of like sputtered along and we, we, in early 2021, we made the decision of like, we don't like, and this is like early 2021, it's pre-vaccine COVID. So you're already in it for like a year. There's no vaccination. We still can't do a conference in person. Um, and so we made the decision to pretty much like do one more virtual conference. Mm -hmm. And that was it. We were going to pivot Ashoka U. There was going to be no more conference. There was going to be no more designation model. And we fundamentally went from an organization that had offerings and programs to something that was much more high level and network based. So we said we're only going to work with the campuses that we've already designated. So the existing network. And they're going to really take a much more research kind of policy-based approach going back to the earlier conversation about like what what strategy and metrics matter ashoka you completely shifted we went from engaging people and institutions to changing like higher ed policy um and creating a network across um of, of, in, of institutions across higher ed and wow. so we did one final exchange and uh we we all we moved on and so i left my executive director left we hired um, a really wonderful chief network officer who had a fundamentally different skill set than we did, yeah. right? And so we also recognize that my skill set is in convenings and conferences and creating and building. My skill set is not in like systemic, like policy level yeah. change, right? Or like broad policy and network based um, work. And so we completely transitioned it. Uh, Shokuyu is still there. It's doing amazing things. The network is still thriving, doing really well, but um, it's it's not where we're at. And it's not a sad story and it's not a bad story. It's really just an evolution of what the, what Shokuyu needed at that time. Yeah, I, I'm sure you know, but I if you don't know, or you have some weird imposter syndrome that at this stage in your career, oddly enough, is still affecting you. I need to tell you, how amazing of a, sh a show for you was as an organization thank and you how impactful that exchange was and the loss of it i really do feel is a major loss to the, to the ecosystem as a whole uh and it's such a shame because it's um yeah it's it's such a loss for everybody because it's not about ability like that's the frustrating thing right it's yeah. about like time and resources right yeah. it has nothing to do with like what or impact it's, it's or not that you're not doing what it's not that yeah. you're it's not that you're providing, you're not providing a valuable service. You were providing a very discreet value that was easy to understand. It was, it moved the needle and yet still sacrificed to the COVID gods. 
Yeah. And, and maybe yeah. someone else will pick it up. I think we were also like, when we wound down, we were very open and we put together, I think a couple of like, just um, like SOPs of like, here's how we did it. We're not going to yeah. gatekeep this. Here are the things I would never do again. And I learned it the hard way. Here are the three things that I think are super important and whoever else wants to like go for it. I'm happy to like chat with you and tell you, you know, any insights I still remember or what I did. But like, I think we also were very open with saying we're happy to hand this off to folks as well. If like, if it's yeah. not us, doesn't mean nobody can do it down the line either. If, if it's still serving like a value to the community. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, it's like, there is an impact to be made that is, above and beyond the, you know, the dollar value to be made on that. I really, I really mm -hmm. applaud you for that. Mm -hmm. So, but now you're at Peace First, right? Yeah. And you're working in this amazing organization. You've talked a lot about the different staff that uh, some of the higher level people that you're working in. Are you hiring anybody? Can I come work at Peace <laughs> First? Who are you, who are you looking for? Oh, that's, I mean, so we're always looking for young change makers um, cool. and who have an idea or maybe just like want to be inspired to have an idea. We are, are, what we're really proud of is our gates are always open, so to speak. We have, it's an mm -hmm. online platform. You can't do anything in person. There's, you just have to go to peacefirst.org and there's a, a way for you to engage, see what's going on, access resources. And so we really pride ourselves of this is really a home for any change maker to find the tools and resources that they need to do this work. We are unfortunately not hiring. You are about like six months too late. Um, we hired our CEOs and so we are all set for the time being. Um, but uh, it's always, I think if, if you're a change maker and you wanna do this work, Peace First is always the place for you. Cool, cool. So well, let's put ourselves in a theoretical environment because I'm assuming eventually you're gonna be hiring and uh, you know, no, you never know when somebody's going to be listening to this or watching this yeah so if i'm interviewing for a position at your company mm -hmm. and you know i either over zoom or in a an actual room i walk in the room with you and i start talking to you how do i just simply blow you away in that interview and you're just like done you know you call your sister like stop take the job yeah. we have the person what, what what did i do in that room yeah, definitely. I think no matter what, what I'm always just looking for, and I, I'm always just struck by are folks who are, are both builders and doers, but also improvers and iterators. Like I don't, I always ask folks like, you know, what's something you've done well, but what would you do differently? What, what have you learned? And so I want someone, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, like someone who always has a sense of things can always be better. The work is never, you know, done, so to speak, that how do we continue moving towards a goal? So I think that's always, again, across any role at any level, I think there are things that we can always be thinking about how we can, you know, 1%, 2%, 5% improve. The other thing that I always love to ask folks um, at any interview is, what do people come to you for on a team? Like you're known as the what person. And so yeah. I feel like that that's also a really great way for me to understand a, like what's their sense of identity? Like how do they view themselves? Um, mm -hmm. But then also how do others perceive them? And again, there, I'm generally just looking for something specific and concrete. Some people are like, I'm just really nice. So everyone just likes to hang out with me, which is like lovely <laughs> and fabulous. Uh, and and like I see Bridget, everybody stuff. hanging out at the, at the water cooler. People just come like, no coffees with me and they yeah. want to go for like, walk. I'm like, okay, fabulous. 
Um, but then there's other folks who are like, do you know what? I'm the folks that people come to when they have a problem. And so I'm a problem solver and people are comfortable talking to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really like how, how do they perceive themselves in a professional environment? Um, and again, that's what I'm always looking for problem solvers, folks who are collaborative, who are accessible. Um, and then I think the final thing I always kind of love to ask people and what I'm always looking for is I always ask folks, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And there's like two camps of people. There's like the one camp that's like, that's the most overwhelming question in the world. I have no idea. Like how I, ca I can't think three days ahead. I have no clue. Yeah. Then there's other people, right? Who are like, well, in year one, I'm going to be here. In year two, I'm going to be here. My life vision is this, and this is exactly what I'm going to get to. And I, it's never about the answer for me, but it's really more about like, is there a direction? Do you have a goal and a vision for yourself that you're excited by? I don't really care if your vision is yeah. to, you know, do underwater basket weaving every Friday, you know, uh, for the rest of your life. That's lovely. If that's your thing, tell me how you're going to do it. Tell me why you're passionate about it, yeah. how you're going to do, like what, what step you're going to take to get there, how this job helps you get to that bigger goal. And so really what I want are folks who are excited about something, have a vision for their lives, are passionate about it. And really for me, it's how, how can I make sure what we're looking for fits into that. Um, and I think, you know, the, whether it's been at Peace First, which is, again, 30 years, um, very well-established organization, and then like Ashoka U, who was really much more startup type of culture and much more entrepreneurial, we were really building it as we went. I think both teams and roles, you know, for myself and folks I always want to work with is, again, builders, creators, like innovators and iterators, no matter what, at any level of the organization. It's always like, how are we moving the needle bit by bit by bit? Yeah. Uh, I think about like our interview process is, is pretty systemic because we're, we're mapping them on a competency matrix mm -hmm. of about 72 micro behaviors five major macro uh, behaviors. And so we have these questions that are supposed to lead to each one. And the answer very clearly articulates a, a score that allows anybody below a three average, we don't talk to, we don't take the yeah. second anybody above a three, we bring. And there was this one question I always ask, which is about people constantly digging into learning and being forward forward leaning and they're learning and it's what do you do that's uh, uh equivalent to practicing your piano skills for piano players or practicing guitar chords for guitar but what do you do on a regular basis to get better at you mm -hmm. practice your whatever what do you, and this one kid answered and i always get some great thoughtful question answers yeah. and this one kid is i make milk tea and I'm like, this is obviously a cultural thing. Um, maybe it's something in, he was Asian, maybe it's something in the Asian culture that I don't know about. So explain to me more about what milk tea, and he's like, it's tea with milk in it. And I'm okay. like, okay, I, I don't understand. Is that like, is that like, you know, is it something like in Japan, there's the tea ceremony? Is it, uh -huh. it's like, no, I just like tea with milk in it. And I'm just like, this kid's an idiot, God. I just wasted two hours on this interview. I'm like, okay, great. Thank you so much. And then I, he was scored high on everything else, but that one was just really the canary in the coal mine. I'm like, no. And 
the person he was the person above him did uh -huh. not accept the role huh so i brought him in one of the most thoughtful employees i've ever had wow. the most like like so grateful for the opportunity so excited still to this day he doesn't work for me anymore still to this mm -hmm. day contacts me and it really led me to realize how well on the one hand you could say how incredibly full of crap i am but on the flip side like realistically you can have this hubris of confidence you know that that these are the right questions and it's giving me the right answer totally how do you how do you figure how do you defeat that value blindness in yourself when you when you're recruiting oh, or you're interviewing? yeah that's such a great question i think and i don't know if i have the perfect answer to it i think the thing i have found to be helpful is whenever i'm interviewing or engaging with somebody i you know take almost verbatim notes on mm -hmm. what they're saying and then the call ends and i don't think about it for 24 hours i come mm -hmm. back because I often find like there are folks that when you're especially on Zoom or in person and you're engaging with them, they're just so charismatic that yeah. you are like this, I whatever, I will do whatever you say, like you are yeah. fabulous, let's be best friends, I wanna hire you, be on my team, it's great. But when you go back the next, and there are folks who maybe don't have that natural charisma, and you're like, meh, I don't know. And maybe it's just I didn't like them, I didn't want to, I was, it didn't feel like I would be their friend. Yeah. What I found is when I go back the next day, very often or like often enough the folks that i have thought like are super charismatic i look back at my like notes and i'm like they said nothing of substance there's yeah. nothing in it. when i look at in written form there's nothing here yeah and when i go back to folks that maybe didn't leave such a huge first impression and i go i'm like wow their answers were incredibly concrete i actually feel like i know who they are as a person rather than like an immediate quick persona yeah. And so getting that space I have found to let kind of the like all of a meeting wear off or the all of a strong personality wear off and really looking at like exclusively what is on the page helps me like gut check some of those biases that maybe like my eyes or something that was overshadowing that I didn't realize at the time. Cool. Cool. I like that. I like that a lot because uh, it's. I had an old, an old colleague used to talk about value blindness and it was just, we were talking about it in terms of investors. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've discovered as I've started working in this field is that value blindness isn't just a conservative or liberal trait. It's not mm -hmm. just because you watch this TV, sh this news show versus this news show, or you listen to this podcast, versus right. all of a sudden you don't have any value blindness it's inherent across everybody and uh, and it's uh, and, and i'm going to bring it back full circle i know that i've learned that lesson based off of a workshop that i went to at the show for you wow the <laughs> microaggression workshop yeah um That's where amazing. i went because i was trying to learn I, I i felt like i should go and you know and i'd heard about microaggressions mm. to understand what microaggressions were I knew I didn't have any, but you know, mm -hmm. obviously, because I'm just amazing. And you know, I'm so without a doubt. Yeah. And I walk into this workshop, and these two amazing women are giving this lecture, and they're talking about a bunch of different things, and they're breaking it all this stuff. This from and the, in one example, they're saying, 
So what you'll find a lot is you'll find what's called a hijack. So you'll be in a meeting, you'll give me, be giving a presentation, and um, somebody will hijack the call. And more often than not, it's a white male who just hijacked. The, they don't mean anything by it, but they hijack the conversation. And I stand up in the middle of their lecture. I'm like, absolutely. I do that all the time. I'm doing that right now, aren't I? Oh, no. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm doing it right now. I was so embarrassed, so horrified. And then I was doing it, it just was like such a moment of awakening that having a detriment like micro, the term microaggressions have been used so much to showcase how bad somebody is. Yes, it's a bad thing. If I'm stepping on your foot, that's not cool. But if I don't know I'm doing it, mm -hmm. am I not cool? Or am right. I just an unaware idiot? You know. But once I'm aware of it, then you, and it's the act of not deciding to be willfully ignorant as opposed to ignorant. Yeah. And uh, so I find that in the value that value blindness question or that conversation is really crucial to have because it's across the board and important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and again, that I. I would not have given this kid a chance. I did not want to give this kid a chance. I was really mad at him. He had wasted two hours of my time. It was possibly the stupidest answer to a question I've received in a long time. And I used to have to interview uh, Columbia MBAs for every three months. And some of the answers, I'd be like, how did you? All right, go back to Columbia and make your money back because I don't know what you learned, what yeah. you learned, what you needed to learn. Like, you know, I, I get some of the dumbest answers to stuff. And this was... So, and it was just so eye-opening that that was that I could have lost this amazing individual. Yeah. If yeah. I had done that. All right. So let's flash forward. So this part, these people have interviewed you. Mm -hmm. You've been interviewed by you. You have get, taken 24 hours. You sat down. You realize that uh, maybe you don't want to be their best friend, but they are the best employee mm -hmm. for the location for the for the job and for the position. And they've been working there for a year, and you killed it in 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 in, uh, in in hiring them. They have fundamentally transformed your organization. What did they do from a, a daily, a quarterly, a yearly? Like, what have they done that that transformed your organization? And knowing that we're not talking about a specific role, we're talking generally about you know. Yeah, I think they've listened and built consensus. They've mm -hmm. understood what happened before they got there. They've understood their role and evolved it to their skill sets and their strength. They've made it their own, right? They've tweaked it. Um, they've done, you know, maybe things that we didn't know we needed. They've been very open to creativity and to innovation. Um, and they've, they've built things. I think I, again, like I, I'm a firm believer, no matter what level I hire at, I want someone who, builds concrete, tangible things, whether it's like improving on a strategy or launching a program um, or, you know, building a data set. They're all equally important. Um, mm -hmm. But I think they can really come in and say, look, this wasn't here before I got here. And here it is. Or this is like this was the way things were before I got here. And it's X, Y, Z better, like exponentially better. So, again, I'm really always looking for folks who um, understand how we got to where we are they take the time they don't like as much as i'm all about building and iterating i think 
going in blind as well is not helpful to anybody. So understanding the context and the history of how we got here is fundamental. Um, mm -hmm. And that makes any output, right, that much better. It takes into account what's already happened. Um, and so I think for me, that's really it. It's, it's did they understand, did they build relationships with folks and have they had um, a concrete, tangible impact on the organization? Cool. When you're managing people, is there some, are there hacks or activities that you do that you found to be incredibly helpful? Yeah. The one thing, and I won't take credit for this, my Marina Kim, my old executive director at Ashokyu, this was all her and um, her idea and her thing. But we would do something called a roommate agreement and like not the best name, fully granted, but we did something called roommate agreement. And the theory behind it was it's something that should be done with every new like manager employee relationship. Um, and so whether you're a new hire, or I have a new manager, I've, I've moved laterally, I have a new boss, whatever it is. And it's just like six or seven questions. The goal is that, or the process is that both parties fill it out separately, and then you share. And the questions are really designed to understand how you function and operate as a human being and as a colleague. Mm -hmm. And so it's everything from like, um, I feel supported in these ways. Like I like to go on walks. Um, I like to take a break and I, I need my lunch break every day, right? Mm -hmm. um, or I need to go work out. Or I just want people to like ask me, how are you doing before a meeting starts? And I just it makes me feel better. It's There's a question in there about when I am stressed, I behave in these ways, right? And so it's like when I'm stressed, I don't want to sit here and overanalyze and like talk to you. I just need to go get something done and then I can come back and talk about it later. When I'm stressed, um, I need to actually, I'm, I'm a verbal processor. I need to talk it out. So I need a buddy to come sit here with me and help me through whatever state I'm in. There's questions about um, how I like to give and receive feedback. There's questions about how I like to be communicated with. And this is, I think, a big one for folks. Um, I have seen folks who slack is the most stressful thing in the world. Like, don't slack me every five minutes. I'm, I, I can't focus, right? Yeah. When we had an office, like when we all worked in the same space at a show for you, I would always be like, you know what? My door is open. I always come in. I love having people in my office. I don't like it when I'm all alone. I had a colleague who would say, actually, I, I keep my door closed because I get distracted. I'm yeah. not being rude or offensive. It's just not good for me. And so I don't like when people come into my office all the time. And yeah. so it's these questions to really understand how you can work with somebody that I, I, I don't know, like I interviewed you, but I don't know how to work with you yet, right? That takes trial and error. Yeah. It's hard in person, let alone on Zoom, it's infinitely harder. And yeah. so it's really a way to just quickly like cut through all the like getting to know you, like trial and error phase, and at least figure out like, how do I communicate and work alongside this person in a way that makes sense? Like I'll, I'll put something there a lot of times where I'm like, do you know what? Yeah, I throw out 50 ideas. I don't really care if you listen to them or not. I have a short memory. I truly won't remember, you know, if you listen to, like, I just, I move on very quickly and I don't take things personally. Like, those are three really important things to learn about me. Yeah. Someone else might come and say, okay, I am actually highly introverted and I don't like being called on without advance notice in a meeting. That's incredibly stressful. Yeah. I um, prefer to view things in writing rather than off the cuff, right? So I can think about it and give feedback. Um, and I prefer one-on-one -on -one engagement versus big group conversations. I wouldn't have known that in a, in a traditional interview 
or really in any interview at all. I hundred percent. I love that. That I love that 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 structured approach to understanding um, awful name. I agree. Roommate agreement. Awful name. Yeah, it doesn't do it justice. Is, but. is beautiful. It's uh, yeah. It's kind of like oysters. They look disgusting, but yeah. that, you know. <laughs> All right, so that is the end of the formal interview. Um, now we want to go into the fun portion cool. of, the, uh, of the podcast, which is the paying it forward. Uh, you know, we one of our core missions is to undercover uh, resources and people mm -hmm. and founders and operators that uh are don't get the support or the recognition or the spotlight that they deserve mm -hmm. uh, so i would love to hear from you you know um whether it's in locally in the dallas uh community in the overall texas community in the southwest in the u.s or globally is there a program a nonprofit, for-profit startup social impact any type of workforce development is there a program that you feel it's just really killing it that not enough people are talking about that you think people should know about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let me actually get you the name. I was just connected to um, a guy based in Austin. He is a brand new Ashoka fellow. He is the founder and CEO of something called the, an organization called the Youth Justice Alliance. I want to make sure I got it right. And what they're doing is something really fantastic where they're partnering with high schools and with colleges to basically empower young people with like legal skills to help them advocate for their families, for their siblings, um, for community members who are caught up in the legal system. Um, whether it's you know a, a minor crime and they're in jail for 24 hours and they just need a quick lawyer, whether they have a more serious charge, it's helping empowering them with the tools to navigate the much, much more complex legal system in this country. Wow, that's super cool. The uh, uh, I I should I should connect him with uh, um, there's this guy um, who runs this uh, the Austin uh, urban technology uh, movement uh, and they it's basically workforce development. Oh uh, yeah, and uh, it, it, they they should be connected if they if he, this guy's hundred times more connected than I am in Austin. So I'm sure he probably already knows him, but if he doesn't, I'll definitely connect it to him because that's a really cool program. Awesome. Uh, so is that just in the Austin area or is it nationwide or regional? I think they're just in Austin. I actually think he's very um, startup-y. He's very early stage right now. And so I think he's, um, ex I'm almost positive he's exclusively in Texas, um, mm -hmm. but I think very like, much looking to build a network and connect with others to because he wants to scale big time. Cool. cool, 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 cool. I love it. I love it. What book have you read either in your lifetime or recently that has blown your mind wide open? Oh man. Okay, I'll give you two that mm -hmm. I just were so different. One, I I so it was an audiobook, I will say. So I'm more on the audiobook track. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, no, no, well, yeah, the, the, for those for those who don't know there is a horrible, unfair shaming of audiobook listeners versus <laughs> readers. Yeah. Uh, that did you really read? And mostly it's for people who are on Goodreads because it, uh, an audiobook does not count to your Goodreads challenge. I am not in that camp. It, you know, I have read Thank Lord you. of the Rings three times. 
Two of them were audiobooks, and they count towards my full rereads. It's totally, and this I always qualify. Like I, I'm an audiobook person, but I do read. Um, and look, I usually read like I listen to like probably 14 to 15 audiobooks. I read like two, and yeah. so you know it gets it done. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I so I listened to on a road trip um, a book by a woman named Tara Westover called Educated. And okay. it was phenomenal. She grew up, um, it was a memoir. So I've also racing onto memoirs and just learning about like, just mm. learning about other women's journeys and what they've been through and what, what, where they ended up. And basically she grew up in a very poor, highly conservative family. I think she was the youngest of like, I don't know, six or eight kids. Um, and they were pretty much like separatists. They, she never had got like formal education, um, was homeschooled. Um, and she, it's her journey of that childhood, that upbringing. And I think she ended up graduating with like a master's from Cambridge. Um, and so it was really her, it's, you know, a story about like family and like chosen family and the family you're born with. Um, mm -hmm. but also like her, what it means to really get an education, a traditional education, a non-traditional education, the value of it. It just blew my mind. It made me think about so many things so mm -hmm. differently and just how to he hear how appreciative she was and how she thought about learning. It was really, and she's, it's so well written and she's so articulate. And the way she'll talk about something of like, she'll say like, you know, I, I never, for example, um, I never took Tylenol for a headache until I was like 25 years old because I was told that this is like, you know, poison in my body and I was never allowed to do it. But she'll walk you through the experience of what it was like taking Tylenol and like yeah. what happened to her physiologically, what she felt emotionally, what she, the aftermath of that was. And she just does it in such a, it's almost like if, if a baby could tell you what it was like having all these experiences for the first time, this is exactly what she does. Oh. Anyway, it's phenomenal. It's fa It's fa absolutely fascinating. Both yes. from just like an anthropological of like, this yeah. is just bizarre and unbelievable, but just her story is also super inspiring. Cool. I, I love those being in the shoes of people and really understanding because I'll never know what it's like to be a woman. But mm -hmm. being in the shoes of a woman's story told from a woman's point of view by a woman not a man writing a woman. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but a woman writing a woman and telling and and realizing that, you know, we are so much more alike than mm -hmm. I would like to believe um, by, you know, by my uh, my teachers on the A-team in, mm. you know, in, in 1980s uh, TV shows. Um, but the, and I, I talked, I, I interviewed somebody uh, a while ago. I don't know when this will come out, but mm -hmm. they, those who listen to the podcast might have heard the, the, that they had mentioned the same thing, that they that they get a lot of insight from uh, biographies and from, um, and from memoirs and from yeah. stories about people that aren't necessarily a self-help book. It's not necessarily a business book. It's not how, you know, so-and-so started this organization it's you know what it's like to be you know what it's like to be persian during the fall of the shah right you know, what is it like to be uh you know what is it like to be a a poor white boy in the appalachias in the 1960s you know uh that type of thing i i find that really 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 interesting because you can 
back to my story about the tourism marketing. You can find lessons that can make yeah. you significantly more competitive if you keep your brain open. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's cool. The um, so you mentioned that that one. You said there was two. Oh man, I think maybe okay. So I won't do another book, but I will break your rule a little bit. Um, and I did watch a documentary that really blew my mind recently. Um, and I think it was just called Stutz. It was the Jonah Hill. Did you see this? It was Jonah Hill, who's like the super bad like comedy actor. Yeah. Um, interviewed his therapist. Um, uh huh. And it's it's so different than anything I have seen. Uh, and it's a really honest conversation between these two people about who they are, how they got there, their relationship with each other. Um, and so Jonah Hill is interviewing the therapist for like half of it. And then the therapist also is like interviewing back Jonah Hill. Is this your way of saying that you would like to interview me? me (laughs) Yeah, that would be a very (laughs) meta way of doing like a future podcast for you. Um, but the things that blew me away is the, the therapist, the name is Stutz. Um, and he talks about something called like, it's like the Stutz, like hierarchy of needs almost, right? It's his version of that. And he talks about like, look, every single person has three fundamental things that make you, you. And he breaks it down as like, first is your like relationship with your physical body. Like how you take care of it. Do you go for a walk? Do you go, do you run? Do you exercise? The second is your relationship with the people around you. And the third is a relationship with yourself. So he's like, this is like the, you know, higher level hierarchy of needs for evolved people. Um, And he talks about, he puts, all he does is put together a bunch of like frameworks for like how to move through your life in a way that really works for you. The relationship between these three things, your physical self, your relationship based self um, and your own, like within yourself. It's, it's phenomenal. It was really one of the last things that made me think differently about like how I've set up my life, what I'm doing with myself, um, and how to move forward. It it's phenomenal. It's on Netflix, I think. Cool, cool. I I, uh, I had I saw it was a quick YouTube uh, book on uh, uh, video on on journaling, and it had a similar approach. But this guy broke it down into the five uh, five things that you need to. Uh, work on every that he works on it every year every month every quarter every week every day mm. one is relationships how to be more present in the relationships you're mm-hmm. in second is um how to be um how how to be more p- purposeful about what you're doing um saying no more you know just doing specific things not just saying yes and doing everything yeah 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 you say yes, but you say yes because of X. Saying no because of Y. Being very mm-hmm. purposeful about it. Um, being better at what you do, like you know, mm. not just doing it to get it done, doing it to to a level of excellence. Um, spirituality, opening your brain and like expanding your mind. Uh, I always think of it from a spiritual standpoint, not necessarily religious, but spiritual. Mm. And then, um, and then your career. Or your uh, mm-hmm. your vocation, yeah. You get better at what you do, and uh, and it was a quick, you know, throwaway ten minute YouTube mm-hmm. uh, uh, video, and I and that fundamentally is structured how I've improved myself over the past fifteen years. Wow, you know, like I've used that. I I, I look at it every week. I journal and I I every year I identify my OKRs in each one of those five, 
and I, I break them into key results that need to be achieved over the next quarters, months, weeks, days, and I break it all down into actual activities. And it's based on, but it, like having that structure and understanding the, the, the ways to think about how to improve yourself or how to think about how your body or your mind works, I find uh, can be incredibly helpful uh, mm -hmm. to, to being able to change your, your world, you know? Uh, all right, so I, I, I have a different question. Mm -hmm. Talk short form or long form, uh, deep impact long form. Um, yeah. I tell all of my operators and startup founders to create conduits of knowledge to uh, to find those newsletters, find those Twitter handles, those YouTube channels, those TikTok uh, uh, impresarios, uh, those those uh, magazines, those uh, whatever it might be, subscribe to them and start developing this conduit of knowledge coming in on yeah. whatever you're trying to get smarter on. Um, so that way on Friday night, you can choose to watch that crappy uh, show on Netflix or you can choose to read that article on AI. Mm -hmm. Can you, know, you can choose to go mountain bike riding or you can uh, read that the latest research paper on uh, upward mobility as it pertains to nutrition. Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever it might be, like you have, you can make that choice. What are some of the main conduits of knowledge and newsletters or Twitter or TikTok or uh, or mm -hmm. uh, or or podcasts that you that you follow to do? Yeah. That? Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of things. So one that's a little bit less like systemic, I think, is I have a couple of very close friends who, who their jobs have nothing to do with what I do. Like they're in just completely different universes. Um, and so what I love to do with them is literally just like sit and pick their brain of like, and one's in like finance, the other is in like medicine to really just like ask like, what are you read? Like, what should I know? You explain instead of me going like on the internet, like you just like, let's do a brain dump. Um, and I want to hear about all these things and literally having a friend where you can go to and like ask questions and engage with. I think that for me has just been a really fun, like non intimidating way to learn about things that I feel like maybe I'm not good at, or it's not like a sector I'm very comfortable with. Um, and so developing and just kind of like nurturing those relationships. The other like really kind of like not impressive thing is um, I have a Instagram account where I basically don't follow anybody I know, um, but follow like creators on things I want to learn more about. So cool. yeah, it's like and it's so the algorithm now basically just suggests things to me. So the new hobby I have now picked up on based off of like Instagram um, is vegetable gardening. So we just put in a vegetable garden in our backyard and I was like, I'm gonna learn. It's very random and arbitrary. I was like, I'm gonna learn how to do it. And so I've like followed like the four or five like Dallas based master yeah. gardeners that show exactly what they're doing. I found mm -hmm. one on, like, then I she offers a class. I like took her class in person. Like I now know her. And so it's been the first time where I've also like leveraged technology in a hyper localized focused way for me and so it's i mean the gardening is like the best example of like it's something that i've it's a skill i've learned most recently it has nothing to do with my professional life and it's like a new hobby that i'm now able to like curate because cool. we can guard we have space and all that and so that's also been like a, a new way of learning for me that's mm -hmm. very non-traditional and it's very outside of my comfort zone to do it in that way cool 
I find YouTube to be the best resource I've ever. Yeah. Because basically it is lean back. I can watch a TV show mm -hmm. only about aquaponics, about using fish in yeah. hydroponics. I can dig deep into the nutrition, the nutrient totally. loads of fish. What are the best fish for protein versus food for which like there's somebody who's done a video about it. And I yeah. can dig into that and my wife will just laugh and be like, so you're going to be an aquaponics startup now? Because literally I'll, all we watched for the past three weeks is aquaponics. All right. So my last, last question, and it is a self-serving question, is who can you get on my program? Who should we have on this program um, that is a resource to the community that not enough people know about? Mm -hmm. Who's somebody that everybody should be following and they're not? All right, so I want you two people, and you might know both of them. Um, I think you should talk to Erin Boyd. She is she was one of the she was so Ashokfi had two co-founders. It was Marina Kim and Erin Boyd. Erin Boyd was the the she left on like year three or year four. Mm -hmm. She um is she was and still is she's at Cul de Sac. And so they're the ones in Arizona, I think they're in Scottsdale um or Tempe, and they're building like the first carless community. Cool. Um, yeah, and she was like an early hire there. Um, and so I think they've got like series A, but like they're like exploding. Um, and she like at her core is like a community builder, basically. So she like grew up in a super rural town in the middle, like Pleasant View, Pleasanton, Texas. And I don't know where Pleasanton is. Um, she basically like, she was like, I was the smartest kid in my class just because I was really curious about learning. So a counselor told me I should apply to Stanford. So I did and I got in. It's phenomenal. So she can tell you like how she built up Ashoka U, like how like the fa she's more of like the like true founding story of Ashoka yeah. U. Um, and then what it was like to be like an early hire at cul-de-sac to build a community like doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And she's tr she's like a true community builder. Like cool. she is like she's someone where like she, she you will really be her best friend in like five minutes and you'll just hang out with her forever um so she's amazing she's like a convener and a connector um do you know marina is also honestly amazing like she is somebody who is much more theoretical than i am so i'm like more like practical like this is what we're actually going to do and this is why it's going to be difficult and here's a timeline marina is like the ideas person um and so ashoki you was her idea and she basically like pitched Bill Drayton, you need to do this. And here's why Ashoka is going to fail if you don't do it. Um, and she got Bill to sign off on it. Um, she is, yeah. And she's like transitioned out of Ashoka. She's like working. She's doing um, leadership coaching now for um, a like a, a really like fast growing company. But like she's the one who had the roommate agreement. Like she, she like lives in frameworks. Yeah. Yeah, and she I, loves speaking I, out I, like I, leadership I, models basically uh, honestly if i could if i could start every every meal with not a prayer and a thanking for this meal but actually an agreement on the framework i would be really yeah. happy so, that's right. she's all about frameworks fantastic all right well yeah. that's amazing thank you spending so much time with else you should potentially talk to sorry mm -hmm. no. um gosh she's my husband's old boss at kpmg colleen drummond she's okay she retired she was like she's amazing she's in her 60s if not 70s she was like one of those women who was like one of the first people in like the corporate workforce yeah 40 50 years ago um and she's retired out of kpng now what she's doing is 
building, she's like trying to launch like intergenerational leadership structures. So like how can folks like who are retired and folks who are my age or younger and like in their or down to like their teens and 20s work together to lead? Like what do mentorship models look like? What are mutually beneficial relationships and professional structures? Um, I had one call with her like a year ago and she was working on it, but she's really interesting. She's um, older and like retired, but cool, cool life story. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I will definitely, well, I'll definitely hit you up for an introduction to them. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate you. I appreciate the time you spent with us. It's been an inordinate amount of time for somebody as busy as you to invest in us. So we really do appreciate that. Uh, for all of the listeners, uh, the community features have been turned off on all the different platforms, but there's a permalink to the community in Huntobot uh, where you can extend. Uh, extend and continue the conversation where do we get it wrong where do we get it right uh i ask uh Bita will be part of that conversation she'll mm -hmm. be invited in there so she can answer questions but a couple things to note as always a be kind but don't be that weird troll just you know you don't agree with us that's cool disagreement is fine do it in a nice way right um have a conversation amongst yourselves this is a more about the community and less about us where this is the catalyst for this conversation and last but not least beta does not work for me beta does not work at hotobot beta is not part of community the community support network she is not there 24 7 to answer your question so she might or might not answer your question if i will you try get in contact with her if you're really interested about peace first if you're, you know, in the MENA or the Sub-Saharan Africa region or the uh, Pacific Rim or the South American uh, area and you want to apply for a Peace First grant, there'll be a link to the Peace First uh, content so that you can contact them and, uh, and, and see if you can't get more information about that. Uh, but as always, go forth and make the world 5% better. Amazing. Thank you, Devin. This was a ton of fun. Cool, 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 cool. Huntoba is a company that focuses on supporting and promoting entrepreneurs regardless of their industry, background, or entrepreneurial phase. We offer e-learning programs to teach skills and prepare future startup founders for the real world. We also host a networking platform where we connect people and entrepreneurs from different industries and communities. Finally, we facilitate an apprentice program where we train individuals and employees in different areas such as marketing. Our goal is to make the world 5% better by enabling entrepreneurs to create businesses for positive impact.